Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Basketball season is now in action, and Bet Online is your top spot for all your NBA action this season. With MLB postseason, NFL, and college football, and NHL in full swing, Bet Online is your number one source for your wagering news, odds, trends, and predictions. Get everything NBA at your fingertips with both desktop and mobile access for every sport, anytime. Head to the Bet Online website today to get in on the action. Don't forget to use our promo code Believe. B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, folks, Jeremy Evans here, host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. This is episode 42 of season five. As you know, on this podcast, we talk everything entertainment, media, and sports law, and industry trends in general. We have a very special guest with us today. We have Mike Scott, who is the senior director of business and legal affairs with the New York city tourism and conventions office, and also formally associate counsel with the Washington nationals. Uh, one of the clubs with major league baseball, of course, and that's where we discuss his career path. Uh, we talk about major league and minor league baseball. We talk about antitrust and labor law, the NCAA and the sports industry. So kind of a wide range of topics, but mostly focusing on, his background and his experience and his career uh, to this point. So folks, sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, the interview with uh, with Mike Scott. Thank you so much. All right, Mike. So Senior senior Director, Legal and Business Affairs, New York City Tourism and Conventions, formerly with the Washington Nationals. Maybe tell us a little bit about your career. Um, you know, how did you – so when you went from law school to – you know, a law firm um, to the nationals. And now of course, in this new role where you've been there for, I guess about a month, uh, yeah. kind of tell us about your process. How did you, you know, um, getting into school and then how you got into sports and when, then what, maybe what you're currently working on. Yeah, of course. Um, and thanks for that intro too. So, you know, I think my career path has really uh, been very different than most people. Um, I went to law school with the idea of wanting to become a sports agent, like many others um, in this industry. I think it was probably about uh, winter break of my first year of law school, started sending out cold emails to different sports agencies here in New York just to see what would hit. Ended up getting a response um, from an agency called Sports Stars. They represent somewhere around 200 guys in the NFL, um, at least at the time. I think it's they're like way surpassed that number now. Um, and actually it was, it was interesting because my first year of law school, I actually went to Michigan state. And like I said, the agency was in New York. So we kind of talked for a little bit. Um, one of the partners there happened to be from, uh, was also a lawyer. It happened to be from a neighboring town in New Jersey from where I'm from. Um, and the more we sort of talked and things kind of progressed, he said, you know, Hey, if you could find a way to get to law school back in New York, you know, maybe we could, maybe we could talk about having uh, some sort of formal internship, you know, program with you. So 
of course, I heard that, got really excited, um, ended up transferring from Michigan State pretty quickly and ended up getting into law school at Cardoza um, in New York. Fast forward, you know, pretty much through my first semester of second year, um, then ended up getting that internship and worked for that sports agency for just about three years. Um, so to, you know, really go back to your question, my original career path is wanting to be a sports agent and got the chance to do that working on marketing and endorsement deals for just about 50 guys in the NFL. That was kind of the sort of client list that was responsible for it. I was doing everything from finding brand partners, um, negotiating those deals, drafting the contracts, and then ultimately executing on them. So for example, um, you know, one of the clients that we had at the time was David Johnson, who was the running back for the Arizona Cardinals. Um, I know it's not with the cards anymore, but for example, if, you know, David, we were going to do an autograph signing at a local car dealership or a local, uh, you know, sporting goods store, um, you know, that would sort of fall on my desk. I would go out there, find, you know, the store or the partner to work with, draft the agreement, and then actually see it through the execution. Uh, but, you know, kind of putting things in perspective a little bit, did that, like I said, for about three years and then, you know, sort of slowly realized, hey, I don't really want to be an agent anymore. Um, spent all this time in law school, um, all this money to go to law school. I never really felt like I was like truly practicing law in like the formal uh, way, sort of doing a more business oriented role. So I ended up going to a law firm, um, ended up practicing labor and employment law, representing mostly labor unions. So I was dealing with collective bargaining agreements uh, pretty much all day, every day. Did that obviously very intentionally because as you just mentioned, labor law and collective bargaining has a really big intersection with sports. And I figured, hey, if I can sort of build a background in this field, uh, and sort of get the substantive legal knowledge in that area, I might be able to parlay that into something a little bit bigger. Um, a lot of the time I was there, I was reaching out to people in sports, in particular baseball, um, doing different things to try and get my name out there, which we could certainly get into if you were interested. Um, I really just like finding different ways to get my, you know, sort of name recognized and known beyond just what people were seeing on my resume. Fast forward a little bit, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Um, the Nationals end up posting an internship I was actually at the time uh, living at home with my parents and not paying rent in a New York City apartment. <laughs> I was very fortunate that they said, hey, you know, if you can get this internship, go for it. Well, you know, we'll give you six months to figure it out and ended up interning with the Nationals for five months, got hired uh, just at the start of the six month and then stayed with the Nationals for just about three years. So that was you know, sort of um, what led me to my most recent career. Um, and now, like you said, I, you know, I currently work for New York City Tourism and Conventions, which is New York City's main destination marketing organization. Uh, so any sort of um, interaction, large event, um, anything that helps bring people into New York City. Um, and there's a bunch of contracts in different areas of law that sort of intersect with that. Um, that's kind of like where my work lies at the moment. Love that. And, you know, with your personality, my friend, I mean, I think it's great that you're with the tourism office because I think it, it, you know, with, with your, because you, know, you clearly have a marketing uh, background or interest. And I think that would probably help you with the contracts and, and the deals that you're working on for the city. Um, Cause in many ways you yeah. have to be an, you have to be an ambassador, right. For the city. And um, but, so I love that. So if we could go back to the nationals um, just for a little bit in your experience there, um, you know, I know that for the most part in your sort of role and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you were dealing with, let's say like media rights agreements, or you're dealing with, uh, ticketing, uh, you're dealing with, um, you know, I guess in many ways, uh, maybe managing outside counsel, if there's any litigation related to slip and falls, but 
Um, what was your experience with sort of either um, major or minor league baseball contracts and uh, international contracts and anything to do with labor in that regard? If you can talk about a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So every team is kind of set up a little bit different. Um, my role was kind of split between baseball operations and then business operations as well. So just taking the baseball operations side of things. For example, anytime there was a major league uh, or minor league free agent contract that was signed, that would sort of come to the legal department. I would look at the agreement, make sure that all the financials were correct, all the different business points were correct. Um, if there were on the major league free agent side, if there were any sort of specific terms that had to be negotiated, um, you know, that would sort of come through our, you know, our legal department. And I would sort of look at those agreements and uh, kind of do like a compliance check just to make sure everything was sort of in order. Um, on the international side, obviously, Major League Baseball is a really sort of big international scouting program, I guess you could say, right? Taking players from um, Latin America and, and, you know, sort of help bringing them uh, to the U.S. to eventually make it to the big league club. Um, so any of those international contracts, I would also sort of do the same thing with. Um, the, the amateur draft, the Rule 4 draft, um, you know, once we were signing players out of college or high school, those agreements would also pass through my desk and then of course, we have the major league collective bargaining agreement and then um, very recently the minor league collective bargaining agreement as well. So, you know, I got to see um, sort of on the outside looking in how the minor league collective bargaining agreement was drafted. Um, I was in charge of certain aspects of implementing new policies on the minor league side once, uh, you know, major league baseball sort of had fully negotiated the agreement with the PA and sort of sent it down to clubs, um, which we can get into like different aspects of that as well. Uh, so labor law, like certainly, you know, interacted with my job on a day-to-day -day basis. There was some out salary arbitration work that was mostly handled by our baseball operations department, but, you know, we got a chance to review the different decks and sort of talk to our baseball operations specialists about uh, what it is they're doing to prepare cases and uh, sort of like put different things in order and, you know, make the best case possible on behalf of the club. So certainly a lot of labor law overlap in what I was doing. Yeah. And that's such a big part of, I think, sports that a lot of folks don't realize uh, particularly if they're getting into sports, how big of a, uh, an impact labor has and, uh, particularly with players associations or unions, um, which of course the big four, you know, the big five sports have it, you know, major league sure. baseball, NFL, um, NBA, NHL, uh, and the MLS. So, uh, I, I did want to bring up, there was this, and if you can't talk about it, um, you know, let me know, but, there was recently this um, article on front office sports that was talking about these 18 uh, state attorney generals that um, are trying to get the U S Supreme court to take up MLB's antitrust case. And of course, when you're dealing with player unions and all this, you know, baseball has sort of lived through this antitrust exemption really since the early, you know, 1900s. Right. And what that allows them to do is sort of do business that may not be normally done um, in terms of with with regulation, right? So they can make deals and um, and and in this case, getting rid of I think it was forty minor league baseball affiliations. So they so forty teams that are now upset are filing suit. And you know if you can talk about this a little bit, if you can if you can't talk about it, we can move on to another subject. But I just thought this was really interesting and. You know, I don't know if the Supreme Court is going to ever overturn, at least in this current iteration, the the antitrust exemption that baseball sort of um, can't, you know, like lives through. 
but I'd be curious as to your thoughts on on any of this to to any aspect. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for me, it was really interesting to kind of see some of this stuff happen in real time uh, because while I was with the Nationals, I, you know, Major League Baseball and baseball in general sort of went through the consolidation of the minor leagues. Um, you know, we got to see teams that were either reassigned to different leagues sort of in real time and, and you know, really sort of see the entire, I think, sort of structure of minor league baseball change. And, you know, and that was part of our day-to-day job. All of a sudden, there were, you know, these things called PDLs that were in place, professional development license agreements, and that basically what binds the major league team to the minor league team. Um, for us, it was a little bit different because we didn't, the Nationals didn't own any other minor league teams. So we t- we really just had a license agreement that sort of binded us with our minor league clubs. Um, but I think overall, you know, at least from my perspective, and I'm only talking about sort of what I saw on the day-to-day basis, there, there were a lot of positive uh, sort of trickle down effects. And from what I understand, a lot of minor league clubs had um, have now gained sort of a direct pipeline and like access to major league baseball in terms of marketing and branding and um, getting club assets out there and making sure there's sort of a tighter link between the minor league club and the major league club. And um, like one of the things I was working on before I left the nationals was a lot, was a IP license deal where one of our minor league affiliates was going to put the nationals logo on their uniforms this upcoming season. Um, so different things like that. So I, I think there, there were um, certainly some positive effects that were felt. I, I do sort of see the other side of things as well without saying too much. Um, but, you know, I think like sort of, you know, the area antitrust is something that's been really historic in baseball. It goes back to, you know, hundreds of years at this point, it, it goes back quite, quite a long way. Um, and I think it'll be, you know, just sort of really interesting to see how that unfolds, um, you know, kind of going forward, if, if anything even happens at all. Yeah. And to your point, I, I almost get the feeling that maybe some of these attorneys, attorneys general are doing this uh, for, uh, for the purpose of maybe making their communities happy or defending their communities, because the reality of it is, is that it's unlikely to be overturned. It might be limited in some way, uh, but I agree with you. It, you know, look, it's sad that a lot of these baseball communities and, and frankly, with independent league baseball, I had a lot of athletes early in my career, baseball players that would go through those leagues uh, yeah. that were, you know, not affiliated with major league baseball, but, um, to your point, though, I think the changes of Major League Baseball um, sort of saying, you know, separating from these 40 different teams, but keeping, I think it was like 80 other teams. So it's still a yeah. lot. Yep. To your point, direct pipeline, uh, direct marketing, um, better pay through this, uh, to, through the collective bargaining agreement that was agreed to. Um, and not only that, but the one thing folks don't talk about is the NCAA's connection to all this, because sure. once you get rid of all of those, uh, those, let's say 40 teams, now all of a sudden you have, where are those athletes going to go? Cause they're not going to get drafted. Cause you also, I think went from 40 rounds in the draft to 20 rounds. And yep. so now all those athletes have a choice to go to school and they can say, okay, I, I get drafted or whether I go play in college. And of course, with NIL in play, um, now is an opportunity to get paid as well. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I think like Major League Baseball, too, is like taking more of a role in some of those independent leagues. Like, I mean, one of the first internships I ever had um, in undergrad was working for an Atlantic Atlantic League club, which is an independent league. Um, And, 
you know, it was one of the greatest experiences I ever had. They were selling out, you know, most nights. And um, I think like major league baseball has been able to step in and sort of develop this pipeline program for, especially some of the younger players um, that are like coming out of high school, for example, and trying to work their way up to the major league. So I, I think there, there are definitely a lot of benefits to, um, the system that was put in place. And I think it's going to be years and years and years before we actually know what the end result is, but um, at least in the onset and like dealing with some of the work firsthand over the past year and a half or two years, whenever, you know, things kind of switched over. Um, I certainly saw like a lot of positives and we got a, a lot of good feedback, I think from our minor league club operators as well. Yeah, no. And I agree. Um, and I, and I think it's gonna be curious to follow where some of this goes, but um, I think baseball does, does play a special role in society. And I've often thought, well, if there wasn't an antitrust exemption in baseball or really, cause there is some antitrust exemption for other sports as well. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not as explicit as it is for baseball, but I just wonder, you know, how would these leagues be able to function without some level of protection? Because if you're like, Oh, okay, well, you know, baseball doesn't have an antitrust exemption. But then you may have the problem uh, of having multiple different baseball leagues, right? Sure. And of course, that was the whole problem with the beginning of baseball is because they said, and if you look at the history of every sports league, and I'd love to get your your thoughts on this, but if you look at like, um, you know, the American League in football and the National League mm -hmm. in football, those were competitors at one point. You know, yep. basketball was the same thing. American Basketball Association National Basketball Association, federal, um, the uh, American League versus the National League. These were all competitors and eventually combined to create one league because it was so confusing to fans and to other people to say, oh, well, I'm following this team in this league, but there's no assimilation to the other league and there's no true champion of who's what. It's almost like the argument of uh, what we call baseball, in baseball, we call them World, World Series champions. But it's in in some ways it's really only played in Canada and the United States. I mean, I guess I'd make the argument that it's a global game and all the players play here. Um, sure. You know, but anyway, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I certainly agree with everything that it is you're saying. You don't want to have that kind of consumer confusion um, with all these different leagues popping up. And um, I think like over time, you know, especially like I think in football, maybe more so than than any other sport and like basketball to an extent, I think in the really early days, you saw some of these leagues like the USFL, for example, and and the XFL and um, even I think like arena football, like to, to a large extent at one point, all sort of pop up and, and some of those leagues largely, you know, failed or didn't make it or, um, you know, the NFL just kind of, you know, took over or sort of the dominant sport at the time took over, but but certainly, you know, kind of agree with what you're saying, at least from a um, not just from a purely like fans perspective, I, you know, I think it would be sort of confusing to have, um, you know, multiple different baseball competitors out there. And that's not to say um, it's necessarily a, a bad thing, right? Cause there are, you know, there are other, um, you know, as, as you said, there's multiple different independent leagues that are out there and they're thriving and, and they do really well and, and they bring in fans and um, look at a team like the Savannah bananas, for example, right? Like very, you know, non-traditional, but um, you know, I would imagine they're outselling, you know, maybe even some major league teams in certain cities um, just because of how successful, you know, they are. So some competition is a good thing, but I, I think also, you know, to an extent from a fan's perspective, you um, at the highest level that you're sort of, you know, your sport is played, you kind of want one uniform, uh, you know, league, and you want to have like sort of a very clear defined mindset of like what teams you have to sort of root for and support. Yeah, no, good point. And I wonder too, Mike, can we circle back on the PDLs for, for a minute? Um, yeah. 
and explain kind of what that is uh, in in terms of uh, well, what you already mentioned what it stands for, but maybe re-mention what it stands for and kind of break down what those what those deals are. Yeah, sure. So um, it's it's sort of a new creation of Major League Baseball once they um, you know kind of took over the operations of the minor leagues. Um, there was something called the Professional Baseball Agreement, the PBA. Uh, the PBA expired. I don't remember what year. I think it was 2021 or, or 2022, something somewhere around there. Um, and then once the PBA expired, that was the agreement that basically linked Major League Baseball to Minor League Baseball. Major League Baseball kind of flipped everything over to a new system where you had these professional development license agreements or PDLs. Um, and these agreements are basically what links the Major League team to the Minor League team. Um, so, for example, the Nationals had my, have Minor League affiliates in Rochester, Wilmington, Harrisburg, and there's one more, uh, well, uh, one more that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but, um, each of those clubs, uh, entered into these license agreements with the major league club, with the nationals, those agreements cover a wide range of topics, everything from marketing and media rights to how players can be marketed, um, to, uh, ballpark standards, to ticketing operations, to certain revenue shares, if any, um, some of those things became, I think, a little bit more nuanced once the minor league collective bargaining agreement was put in place. Uh, but essentially what it is, is, it's a sort of, it's a set of operating guidelines that minor league teams kind of live by. Yeah. No, I love that. And, and it's it's funny because I think a lot of times folks think with minor league baseball is, at least in the past, and I know some of this is changing, but in the past it would be like, folks would think, well, doesn't the major league team have control over that team? Well, some somewhat, right? But yeah. essentially, they're doing their own marketing, um, and those minor league teams don't really control the players because the major league club does. Because in yeah. terms of what do those players move up and down, and and oftentimes for those local communities, some of the the highlights are, um, like for example, I remember when I was growing up, I think Randy Johnson um, was coming up uh, was injured or something, and he had to go play at a single A ball club, you know, near my hometown. And it was mm-hmm. like, that was like the big to do, right? Where these players would, would sure. come through. And of course, you know, I know you're a lover of baseball, you know, as, as I am, but baseball is completely different from other sports, right? Because like in NHL, I would say NHL is probably most similar to baseball. You have, you know, you have the draft, you have the minor leagues, you know, single A, double A, triple A with some rookie stuff. Um, but then you look at b- basketball, you know, you have the, the G league. You have the professional development program. You have the um, overtime elite league. You know, NFL really doesn't have a minor league other than the NCAA because that's where they're getting right. it from. Uh, basketball, in some sense, they have the international as well. Uh, and then, of course, soccer is all based on clubs and development either overseas or local. So baseball is really kind of this – its own entity um, in, in, in some sense. And – uh, just, just very interesting, and I'm, it's fascinating that you were able to have that experience uh, with the Nationals. Now, if we could switch gears a little bit to your current role with the New York City Tourism, uh, you know, office, you know, you're in-house counsel, and obviously, you know, you have this focus. You're your lawyer, so you have to deal with the laws. But what is sort of the balance there with the business aspect? Because obviously you're trying to get deals done. So how do you how do you balance that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's hard. I think it's something that you learn sort of working in house. And something I was really taught in my in my time with the Nationals is 
Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a lawyer that always likes to try and tell our business people. Yes. I never like to tell people no. Um, you know, especially when you're working with, uh, creatives and, um, you know, sort of people in that space that, you know, have these like really brilliant ideas that they want to get out there. It's really, you know, it sucks to have to tell them no to something because it might violate some sort of law or the risk exposure is too much. Um, so for me, I'm always trying to look for the, you know, for the creative solution. I think, you know, one of the things I really love about my job is that, um, I get to be more involved on the business side of things and um, sort of see how deals come together from, you know, a very early stage. to then, you know, the point where I'm actually drafting the contracts for them. Um, so for me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very much of the mindset where I always like to tell people, yes, um, you know, the agreements that come across my plate are extremely broad and, you know, really varied. It can be anything from a sponsorship agreement to some sort of agreement with like a DJ, for example, that's, um, you know, going to, appear at a conference or at some sort of event that we're hosting. Um, and this goes for both my time now with NYC tourism and with the nationals too. You just never know what you're going to get. I, I mean, I remember with the Nats, one of the first things I did was work on an, uh, a lease agreement for lawn mowers because we needed the John Deere mowers to like actually, you know, keep the grass in, in sort of like good condition. Um, so, you know, one of those things about in-house is you really never know what you're going to get, but, you know, going back to your original question, um, for me, it's, it's, it's definitely a hard balance, but I think really understanding the business person side of things, um, understanding what the goal is, what is the message they're trying to get across and, you know, a video or, or a piece of creative or um, what's the purpose for what they're actually using this vendor for. I think like having that in mind and not just going straight to the legal solution or like the risk involved, but like keeping sort of the business uh, sort of goal in mind as you kind of like work through, you know, work through different issues and different situations. I think that's, you know, been really important. Yeah, no, I love that. I often would say, uh, I like to be the department of yes, but <laughs> so yeah, yes, we're going to get this deal done, but this is how we're going to get it done. Or this is how we're going to work around it or work through it, if you will. Um, now that's yeah, fascinating. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. I wonder, can, um, you know, Mike, can we talk a little bit about NCAA? You know, this is sure. something that, um, you know, you and I are both lovers of sport. Um, NIL is a sort of this new sort of era in sports. Um, you have this NCAA model that is, you know, originally based on amateurism and, you know, folks basically going to school, um, and playing a sport. And it seems like there's been a refocus of some of that to where it's like folks are playing a sport and going to school, Right. So it's kind yep. of like a reversal in some sense, but the NCAA has always been, and schools have always been, look, hey, you're enrolled here. Your job is to go to school and to graduate. Where do you kind of see, you know, some of this NIL stuff going? Do you, do you see the NCAA coming in to regulate, you know, this a little bit more? Um, or do you kind of think that the ship has sailed? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good question. I think, not to give the lawyer's answer, but it depends, right? I think <laughs> I, I think that the sort of rise of the individual conferences and sort of the power that they're obtaining through their media deals and through realignment and sort of different efforts that they've sort of undergone from a governance perspective, I think sort of changes the landscape of things a little bit. Um, I think we're sort of in the middle of that right now. I don't think we're really going to know how that's going to turn out just yet. Um, but I think as these conferences get more and more powerful and the money becomes more and more and the media rights become more and more expensive, I think you may start to see the decline of the NCAA or maybe not the decline, but sort of a reworking of it. Um, I think the way that we sort of see it today may not be the way we see it five years from now. Um, I'm certainly 
you know, a proponent of NIL, I think it's great and awesome that players are able to um, sort of capitalize on, on their own name as they should be. I, I mean, I, I did my undergrad at Florida state and um, I remember going to the school store and, and buying a, you know, I was there when Jameis Winston was sort of leading FSU to the national title um, in 2013, 2014. I remember buying a Jameis Winston Jersey and, um, of course, being a you know sort of young sport management undergrad, not understanding why he couldn't get paid from you know my purchase of his jersey. So I certainly am a proponent for it, and you know understand all the reasons for it. I you know as a lawyer, of course, trained to see both sides of the issue. So I certainly see a lot of the negatives too. But um, you know, I, I think a lot of you know sort of the landscape of what college sports and NIL is going to look like is really just is going to depend upon sort of how conferences realign themselves and. Um, what's the role that they're going to take going forward? Because I don't think they're just going to be conferences anymore. I think it's going to be much bigger than that. Yeah. No, great answer. I, I, I agree with you uh, completely. I think it. the schools are going to have a lot more say. I think the NCAA is going to have to be reworked, um, you know, because if they're going to be an authority in, in the space, they're going to have to start uh, establishing rules and, and enforcing those rules, right? And yeah. And- yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think also we're still waiting for um, the states to, you know, sort of regulate things, um, not, a little, not a little bit better, but just in a more developed way, right? Because like, this is all so new, you can't expect any sort of state, you know, regulatory agency or governing body to have all the answers on day one, because we are still in like the very early stages of this. Um, so I think like, I've, you know, I've spoken to a bunch of friends that I have on kind of the agent side of things. And um, I think they're all sort of like, yeah, we're just sort of going with the flow at the moment. Like no one really knows. Um, it's kind of like, Hey, let's see what we can get away with and keep our fingers crossed type of thing because the agent, you know, the agency world was super unregulated, um, kind of traditionally always has been other than requiring agents to have a license to operate in the state. It's really, you know, for the most part, kind of been a free for all. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to sort of see. Uh, kind of the balance between states, the NCAA, and then the different universities slash conferences and well and as well and kind of like what that balance looks like going forward. Yeah, no, no, good point. Um again, I think uh, you know, like you said, it's it's NCAA sort of making a move in its own regard. I think it's teams and conferences and as you mentioned with states, I mean if if anything, you have, you know, essentially these 30 different state laws for the states that have passed a name, image, and likeness law specific for athletes, um, and trying to figure that out, but it's a, it's a fascinating space, you know? Um, I wonder too, if we can change gears a little bit and, um, kind of go into like discussing some private association law, particular with regard to, you know, commissioner authority, um, how non-league sports work. So like private sort of, uh, um, or individual sports like tennis and golf, and then maybe kind of getting into a little bit of a discussion about, um, you know, league structure with regard to team decisions and relocation. And this is something obviously that's big on the minds of the Oakland A's as they consider a move to uh, Las Vegas and how that might work. And, you know, obviously all the team owners voting on this, um, how new stadiums are are developed and paid for. This is fascinating. And I know, um, you know, with the Nationals, yeah, that 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 ballpark was built. Do you remember the year that the new ballpark was built there, Nationals Park? I want to say it's oh eight. Oh eight. Okay. Yeah. So not like brand new, but new, new enough, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Definitely. But it's but private association law is one of like with these fascinating things, right? Where, like, you want to talk about like salary caps and 
how certain things work. You know, it's funny. Last week, I I wrote this column on salary caps and how it compares to uh, like the luxury tax in baseball. So, you know, pretty much all of the um, out of the five major sports in the United States in terms of team sports, you have you know baseball is the only one that doesn't have uh, a salary cap. They have a luxury tax. The other four leagues do, and of course overseas. Salary caps and luxury taxes are really kind of non-existent, except for uh, I think the Spanish league, La Liga, and then of course the Premier League is considering this. But I, I guess what what were you, what are your thoughts? And maybe starting with the salary cap, um, do you, do you like the salary cap in other sports? Do you like, prefer the luxury tax? What are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's at least in baseball, it's just to a large extent a product of historical collective bargaining between the two parties. Um, you know, I, I think that like, if you read the news when the last round of collective bargaining happened, I think you're starting to see the parties kind of have different mindset on things. Obviously the union's not going to want a salary cap because they're going to want players to get paid as much as they possibly can. Um, clubs on the other hand are, are, you know, certainly at least some of the clubs are going to be in favor of some sort of salary restrictions. Um, you know, I don't know, right. Like, I think it's really hard to sort of evaluate because if you look at baseball, there's like you said, no salary cap, right? There is a luxury tax for spending over certain thresholds. But then you look at a team, you know, if we just take the World Series, for example, you have the Arizona Diamondbacks who are, you know, probably I would imagine have a bottom third payroll or at least in the bottom half of the league. And here they are in the World Series and, you know, they beat out all these really high payroll teams to sort of get to the spot that they're currently in. And on the flip side of things, you have the Rangers who are, you know, have one of the highest, you know, I would, I think it was top five or top six um, salary, you know, salaries in, in the, in the league. Um, so it's, it, I think it's really hard to evaluate these things. Like I think baseball is always sort of striving for competitive balance. That's always kind of the buzzword that you hear. Um, and I think it's like hard to say that there is no competitive balance when a team like Arizona makes the world series and um, you know, has won a game already. Um, you know, and in recent years we've seen, you know, teams like the Tampa Bay Rays in, in, in the world series. Um, so I think it's a really, it's a really difficult issue. And, you have two sides of the coin that are as diametrically opposed as you can possibly be. Uh, because like I said, you have the union that wants to get as much money as possible for their players and teams on the other side that, you know, both need to balance competitive balance with also um, trying to keep their costs low. Um, so I think it's just, it's a really interesting issue. I don't, I don't, I wish I had the answers for how you resolve it. I don't know if there is a way to do that. Um, I would imagine like you, you start to see baseball kind of make some changes, for example, um, you know, in this last round of collective bargaining, um, there's some sort of preset formula or preset amounts um, for younger players, um, rookies or guys that are super too eligible to get paid earlier in their careers um, or get to get some sort of money from a bonus pool, I think it was called. Um, so you're starting to see some sort of parity there and like some, you know, I think a little bit of change, which is something we've never seen in the past. Um, so I think it's a really interesting issue and we're, you know, this is a, another one of those things that we're sort of living through day to day too. Yeah, no, good point. And, and I think, I think very well said it's, uh, I think it, it, like you said, it's based on league by league and, um, but I, I know that one of the reasons they do this is for competitive and economic balance or parity, you know, and it's interesting because the article I wrote last week talked about how, um, you know, this, the, the sort of point of competitive balance if you look at baseball with the luxury tax versus the other sports, it's about the same in terms of playoff appearances. And yeah. actually baseball's done a little bit better when it comes to 
getting different teams in the World Series, different teams in the playoffs. And of course, baseball has the least amount of teams making the postseason. So you can't you can't even really stack the deck anymore uh, in, in that way. But uh, these are all like fascinating things. And, and, you know, Mike, I appreciate you spending time with us. And I, um, you know, and you're expert on all these things. I guess if I could ask you one last question, it would be, um, I guess, maybe two part where you kind of see the sports industry going um, in sort of a broad way. And, and in terms of, is it going to change? Is it going to, are we going to see more artificial intelligence? Are we going to, you know, I guess just maybe your broad spro- uh, strokes there. And then lastly, maybe just some advice for folks trying to to break into the industry. Yeah, sure. Um, I think sorry, from a broad picture, um, you know, big picture sort of perspective, I think I'm really interested to see sort of how all these different emerging technologies and emerging sort of subjects impact sports. So not only kind of artificial intelligence, for example, um, but also the world of private equity. Right. Look at the, you know, sort of influx of private equity in sports. Um, you know, it, it's something that I don't think we've ever sort of had in our lifetime. You, you, you typically like, you know, the Nationals, for example, are a family owned business. Um, you know, the, the Lerner family helped bring the Nationals to D.C. and um, have sort of kept it in the family, you know, ever since. And um, now the NBA and I think the NFL, too, are sort of opening up their doors to um, sovereign wealth funds and different private equity firms and. Um, that's sort of like the new and, and, you know, kind of emerging trends in this business. Um, I think another thing I'm sort of interested in is the globalization of um, sports too. Uh, so like one of the things I've, I get the chance to work on in my current job is, is the prep, prep, all the preparation for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Um, New York and New Jersey are hosting a whole suite of games. And I think there's, we're still in competition for the final round um, as well. Um, so soccer's rise in the U S has been huge with, with Messi coming over here. And, um, now, you know, I'll get the chance to sort of see a world cup firsthand right in my backyard. And, um, you know, just to see the sheer amount of people that attend these events is really interesting. And then, um, you know, you have, I think you have an NFL game being played in Germany this upcoming week. Uh, you also have major league baseball games being played in London and in other places overseas. Um, so I'm really kind of curious as to kind of the cross pollination between, um, domestic sport here in the U.S. and um, sort of on the international side of things as well. And um, we even saw the Premier League come to the U.S. this past summer. Um, so I'm really kind of curious as to see how all these different crossovers develop um, and, you know, kind of like what things look like going forward. Um, in terms of advice, I think, for for students and people trying to get in this industry, um, you know, I think one thing that I really tried to kind of live by when I was going through the process of finding roles in sports was don't, you know, don't be afraid to take chances. Um I, you know, I did way more than just send my resume out to teams to try and get interviews. I did everything from putting together salary arbitration case studies, doing what you're doing and writing articles, um, appearing on podcasts, um, doing anything and everything so that when I was emailing general counsels of clubs or, um, you know, legal teams at the league office, I wasn't just saying, hey, here's my resume. Will you please talk to me? I was saying, hey, here's this salary arbitration, you know, study that I put together on this one particular player who's arbitration eligible this upcoming year. What do you think? What am I doing wrong? Like, how can I improve upon my my deck? Um, how can I make this better? What am I not, you know, what am I not realizing because I was an outsider at the time and I didn't have sort of all that inside information? Um, you know, so I think like not being afraid to like think different and do things differently, um, I think can really help you stand out because uh, you have to remember there's 
hundreds, if not thousands of people trying to get into this field. And, you know, at least like, let's just take baseball. There's 30 clubs. Every club carries no more than three or four lawyers. Um, some clubs maybe have five or six, but that's like the extreme rarity. Uh, so you're talking about not a lot of jobs that are available. So to the extent that you can do things to make yourself stand out and just be different than all the other candidates that are also applying for those same jobs, I think that's when it, what's going to help you sort of get the furthest in your career. Yeah, no, I love that. No, well said, Mike. So every, uh, everybody, Mike Scott, Senior Director, Legal and Business Affairs at New York City Tourism and Conventions and formerly Associate Counsel with Washington National. So, um, you know, Mike, thanks again. All right, everybody, that was Mike Scott, the Senior Director of Business and Legal Affairs with the New York City Tourism and Conventions Office and formerly Associate Counsel with the Washington Nationals. As always, appreciate you listening in and making us number one sports law podcast in the world. We look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you so much. And this show has been brought to you by Bet Online. <laughs>